0: All right, well, we will get started. Welcome to our second week on Ephesians. Currently planned for six weeks. I'm sure we could squeeze it into seven if we need to. So we'll kind of uh, respond to you guys. First, I want to start off with an intro, because last time I had done Ephesians 1 only, I didn't really have time to prep an intro, because Josh got sick on us. So, um, So I want to do that, and then we'll jump into our text, primarily looking at chapter 2, verse 5 but really 115 to 2.10 in that context. So a little bit of a, an Acts intro first. Um, so Paul, Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 were, were uh, teachers, faithful disciples in Antioch, and they were called by the Holy Spirit to go on a missionary journey. Well, th- they did lots of things. I'm skipping lots of details, but we basically have three um, missionary journeys, and then maybe you could call it a fourth where Paul ends up in Rome. Uh, for his trial. And so Acts 13 and 14 is that first journey. Paul and Barnabas leave. They hit Cyprus. Uh, they're going to come up to the coast here. And then they're going to go through um, 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 Lydia, Derby, Iconium, some cities you've probably heard of, mostly in the region of Galatia. This is modern-day Turkey. And here's Greece and Italy. That's probably not quite to scale. Um, <laughs> Israel and Syria is still where they're at. They kind of loop around. And then they come on back. And then they go back to Antioch and give a report. Uh, And then Paul ends up down in Jerusalem. And that second journey really starts from there. This is where Paul and Barnabas part their ways. uh, Because they have a disagreement over um, John Mark, who had left the first journey. And so they go. He's going to go up now by land. He's going to go this northern route. He's going to revisit those cities. And then he's going to avoid Asia. The Spirit told him not to preach there. And he's jump over to Macedonia. And he's going to come down, this is where we get Mars Hill in Acts 17, uh, Corinth, he spends a long time in Corinth, and then there he's going to come up and sail down, and this is his first contact in Ephesus, at the tail end of his second missionary journey. Um, and then, so there's going to be an, an initial establishment, they want him to stay, he says, sorry, I can't stay, I need to go, but I promise I'm going to come back to you. And then he comes on back home again. While he's gone, between the second and the third journeys, Barnabas, uh, Barnabas, uh, sorry, Apollos is going to be teaching in Ephesus. He's going to have some doctrine corrected by Priscilla and Aquila. They have a whole church in their home. Um, so you have at least three good teachers and disciples uh, in Ephesus in that time frame. The third journey, uh, now we're getting in. So the first journey was, let's see, I can't remember my dates. First journey was like 46 to 47 A.D., and then 49 to 51, so his initial contact is probably around 51 AD, and now he goes back between 52 and 57 AD. That third journey is five years long. It's a long one. Now he's going to go a more southerly route, he's going to visit a lot of these same cities, but now he's going to go to Ephesus, and he's going to remain there for three years. Now you think about all the places that Paul went, and just the immediate impact he had on a single sermon in a synagogue, and the crowds, and the riots, and Usually when he moved from town to town, it's because persecution is pushing him out. To have a man like Paul uh, with the Spirit to remain with you for three years. You can just imagine the amount of teaching. And what Acts tells us, Acts 19 primarily talks about this period. Um, these are the people who had not heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Um, they continued. Re- Paul continued reasoning in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus for two years. So every day for two years, he was evangelizing and defending that Jesus is the Christ. And conversion after conversion after conversion and and the growth. And what Acts 19.11 says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So in all these places, miracles were done. Something, God had a purpose in Ephesus and extraordinary miracles were being done. He's going to lead Ephesus, come up down the coast here, And then he's going to come back. He's not going to stop in Ephesus. He wants to get back to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's going to stop in a town just south of Ephesus, and he calls for the elders. And I wish we had time to read this. Acts 20 is is just such a beautiful passage. This conversation, this relationship that he had with the elders. These elders he had spent three years with. A little passage there I'm going to read. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have about among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Think about Ephesians 1. We went through that the, what I call the diamond of salvation. All these facets, these, this richness of our salvation. He preached all the whole, the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And there's a whole personal aspect in here. They're weeping that they'll never see him again. They have, this isn't just a teaching ministry, some, you know, YouTube preacher, uh, with a bunch of followers. This is, this is a pastor as well as an evangelist who, and they are, they are heartbroken that he's going to leave. And he knows that he's going to leave from there and go to Jerusalem. And he knows trouble's waiting for him. In fact, he's going to be bound up here. He's going to claim his Roman citizenship and he's going to be sent to Rome for trial. And that, while he's in house arrest in Rome, is where he writes this letter to the Ephesians. About three to five years later, maybe about four years later, than this time with the Ephesian elders. From there, he's going to write Ephesus, also Colossae, which is a little to the east, and Philemon. He's going to write all three of those letters. Uh, and you'll, the, the theme, it's almost like a copy-paste, as much as he could do back then. When you read Colossians and Ephesians side by side, it's I don't know what the percent is. It's like 80% similar content, flow of thought. So, you'll probably see me quote from a colossians quite a bit in this series as well. But if you think about um uh he, he know here he spent 3 years of his ministry, his fairly short life in ministry, and he knows wolves are going to come come among them and how 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 crushing that would be for him as well. As a planter, as a teacher, to know that when he left, things were going to get infested, you know? It's like a gardener who stops tending the garden and, and, and roots are going to take bear and weeds, weeds are going to come in and, and he's pleading with them, pleading with these elders to watch out. And so you can kind of see some of these tones as we go through Ephesians, um, you, you know, to know the wisdom of God, to, to rely on the gospel that they've been given. And not to, to give away to these divisions, and to grow up into maturity, not just to be someone who's heard the gospel once or twice, but to, to really be rooted in it, and to be ready for this persecution that's coming. It's, it's a theme we have in a lot of the books. Well, why Ephesus? You can kind of see where it's at. I mean, this, it's between, this is Asia Minor. Obviously, all of Asia is that way, but it, it's between Asia and Europe. This is a very strategic um, geographical point. It's among lots of trading routes. It's on the water. And so obviously it's a huge place of commerce. And then it grows into a huge place of learning. Uh, and They have a large um, temple there to the goddess, what is it? Someone knows. Uh, who is it? There's another name for it. Dana. Is that right? It's somewhere in this big piece of paper. Diana. So you've got a lot of pagan worship. You've got a lot of commerce, a lot of learning. And you can kind of see the hints of what it will mean to to understand the wisdom of God, to have your heart enlightened and have greater wisdom than this world could ever give you. And to receive an inheritance and the riches of this glorious grace that he lavishes on us. So the riches that will be far above anything that you can imagine. And when he calls them to holy lives, it's going to be very conspicuous in such a culture. This is not a Christian culture by any means. For them to live like Christians, it's going to be very obvious and they're not going to be very popular. And so that's a little background. Uh, you can see the outline that we're using. Uh, basically, I have three sections there. These lofty plans and purposes. We already covered most of chapter one. We'll hit a little of that again today. But again, just to, to remember back to, we've talked about our predestination, our adoption, our forgiveness, our redemption, and how Jesus has been has made, made higher than all things and seated in the heavenly realms. And this glorious purpose that God is unfolding in history. That our salvation is just just a part of this whole plan that God has from the beginning. And then we'll look today about primarily about what it means to be brought from death to life and saved by grace. And then, basically, from those grand purposes that that Paul talks about in chapter 1, the rest of the letter is kind of laying out how that's going to unfold, what steps it's going to have towards fulfillment. Uh, Next week we'll talk about this the unity of reconciliation, particularly Jews and Gentiles being brought together. But all walls are broken down so that we can have unities of a body. And then with that unity, we grow into spiritual maturity through the gifts and the roles and, that God has given to the church. And then we live out those lives in our individual lives as wives and fathers and children and masters and servants. We're to live out what it means to be a Christian. And then in chapter 6, he gets into some spiritual warfare. So that's kind of our rough outline as we go forward. Uh, I also, last time, talked about, in Ephesians 1, 3 there, three elements is kind of a key verse I'll be using throughout the book. That we're saved in Christ. All of our blessings are only found in Christ. So to be outside of Christ is to miss all these blessings. And because we're in Christ, who has every blessing, we receive every blessing. There's... The adjectives that Paul uses is just overwhelming. He lavishes on us the riches of his glorious grace. There's, there's nothing lacking. There's nothing minimalistic whatsoever about our redemption. And then he talks about that these are in heaven. There's, you know, there's a kind of a view of Christianity. You can, you see it in the political se- uh, season we just went through, but there's this temptation that to, To make Christianity plausible and meaningful and nice because it makes us a good neighbor. It makes us good people. And we're going to see today that certainly good works is a very important part of our salvation. But to be the focus, to be the ground of that, is would make this make no sense. If our focus as a Christian is how we live on this earth, we've completely missed the plot. There are blessings that we don't per se experience, but that we have to be taught by revelation, for instance, to be dead or to be alive. And so when you're tempted to, to kind of tamper down what it means to be a Christian, uh, to something that's palatable to your neighbor, don't give into it. A thousand times no. Don't, that we, we lose the gospel to just be focused on this earth. We've been hearing in our Hebrews 11 that these heroes of the faith, This world is not their home. It's not our home. And so our minds and our hearts need to be set on heaven. And again, this is all part of God's consummation plan on our way to heaven. And we'll see soon that we're already seated there. All right, Megan, if you can read chapter 115 to 23. That's going to read uh, 2, 1 to 10. When you were then
1: and trusted with <coughs> the sins, in which you once walked, following the flesh of the soul, following the flesh of the palm of the air, the spirit that is now working work in sin, and the soul of the needs. we all once met in the passing of death, carrying out the desire for the body and the mind, who were by nature children shielded in the the flesh of the For God, being rich in mercy, He the great love, and which you love, us, even when we were then and trusted, by grace, you have and the So that in the coming ages, you must show words of grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. so that But we are
0: in we the which Josh, can you pray for us? Dearly, Father, we thank you for
2: uh, the truths that you show us in Scripture, uh, that we can look to your word uh, to see reality as it really is. And we pray that as we uh, study this uh, book, that you would open our eyes to the truth that you have there for us and
0: the great love that you have shown us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I gave, I've given you the verse references, but we can go through each one of these and see examples of this to be in Christ. Faith in Christ. He's head of the church. We're made alive together with Christ. We're raised and seated with Christ. His grace and kindness is shown toward us in Christ Jesus. He's created us in Christ Jesus. We talk about our every blessing, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the riches of His glorious inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of His power. Listen to those adjectives. Far above Every name, head over all things, rich in mercy. And then we see that things are in heaven, the eyes of our heart enlightened. It's not the eyes of our bodies. These are the eyes of faith. The eyes of our heart is enlightened. Seated with him in heavenly places. I didn't put this part on your hand that I should have, but uh, I mentioned it. That The reason I wanted to go back to chapter 1 and not just start with chapter 2 is we want to see in context this, this great work of salvation that God's doing. I want you to see how that's rooted in all of God's plan. Verse 20 to 23 in chapter 1. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Sorry, that was 10 and 11. Go back to 20 and 23. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion of every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, fills all in all. you kind of get it? All, 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 every. We saw in, uh, you know, in our preaching series in Hebrews 2 that all this is really wrapped up in Jesus' incarnation because he's made a man, because it's, it's man that God has put, subjected all things under hand. And Jesus is the perfect man. Uh, Romans 1, we see that it's not just man that's um, cursed because of the fall. We see all of creation is cursed. And in Romans 8, all of creation gets redeemed. And so, again and again, we see this theme that our salvation is not some little individual thing, little... Um, you know, Jesus is my homeboy kind of personal relationship. Um, it's it's everything. And it, it includes all of the church as well. We're not just individual Christians on an island. But also all of the world is being redeemed and all of it's important. Um, we also see in chapter 1 the whole the whole issue of we're not just saved for our benefit, our individual benefit. I mean, we get huge benefit. But we're also saved as part of this huge plan to God's glory. God is benefited, if you can say that. He receives glory in our salvation. So it's just mind-boggling to sit there and meditate on these things. It's it's impossible to really relay in a Sunday school class. You just have to sit and read such passages and fall on your face and, and let the Spirit fill you up in the truths that, that are really just too hard to explain. Okay, so we want to look at chapter 2 specifically. And in those verses about being brought from death to life, I just want to list some, some points that I find there. First of all, and this is on your hand now, that salvation requires a creative act of God. That word regeneration, fancy word, just to be born again, to be to be brought back to life. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says this, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, so back to the creation of the world, let light shine out of darkness, that God has shown in our hearts, to live the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so it's the exact same creative power that created everything we see that has created life in your dead heart. It's the same God, same power. And so one reason to understand God being a creator and not subject that to some other teaching, to some other beliefs, is that that's the same way that we become a Christian. That we're brought, we are truly dead and brought to life. That's not just an analogy. It's a truth claim. And so the, I think the best way to understand what does it mean that we're given life is to look back at, at the garden. What did it mean that Adam died? Adam was told, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. We see him sin. We see him eat the fruit, but we don't see him drop dead. So what's going on there? Well, first of all, we know that he spiritually died. He was separated from God, from communion with God. There was a separation, a spiritual death. Also, we see that the process of physical death did, did did start that day. His His body started to decay. All of creation started to decay that day. Hadn't done that yet. And we know that his death sentence was pronounced that day. He would absolutely physically die because of that sin. And of course, then without any intervention from God, he was condemned to eternal death at that point. So we see a spiritual death, a physical death, and an eternal death. So all of those are reversed by the second Adam. When we are brought from death to life, there, there's a renewal in every aspect. So the spiritual, the eyes of our heart are enlightened. We're, we receive ears and a heart. You know, these, these are physical words, but these are new spiritual realities that we have. The spirit now lives within us. And he teaches us. He gives us understanding. Physical death. We're going to be raised. Our body is going to go into the grave. And it's going to decompose. But God's going to put that. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't care if you're cremated or buried or whatever. God's going to bring that physical body back and make it new. We're going to have a physical body in glory. And of course, as Christians, we are saved from the second death. From the eternal death we are guaranteed to never enter such death. So that's what it means to be brought from death to life. And as I said, back to chapter 1, verse 15, it takes the spirit of wisdom and understanding to understand these things. If you went to your unbelieving neighbor right now and said, you're dead, they're going to say, you're crazy. I'm not dead. I'm active. Not only am I alive, I have a whole host of good works I could show you. And I, I can justify... Maybe where I'm weak and not perfect, and I don't—they—they they will honestly be saying, will be saying to you, "I'm not dead." Some people will have great lives and they'll say, "I feel more alive than ever." And contrasted with that, there are some Christians that will feel at times dead and down and depressed on a given day. And so you can't just rely on your experience. Some of, some of these things, some of these every blessings, you you need the Spirit. You need the revelation of God to teach you about that. And that's why you need to read your Bibles and dwell on these things and be taught these things and believe them. And now act out as if they are true, even if you don't experience it. Even if you don't feel that's what it means to live by faith. And to not live by sight or or in your flesh, or to listen to human philosophies. It's it's to listen to what God teaches us. That's where there's safety. And in as much as you're already dead when you come into this world, you are born uh, into this world, stillborn in a sense, spiritually stillborn. You're dead from day one. You're dead. That that's our understanding of the human heart. And unless God does a miraculous work, and like Lazarus calls you out of the tomb from death to life, you remain that way. That that your starting position is not neutral. It's not a matter of what you do with your life. To go down or up. You start down here. And God in his grace chooses some. And raises some up to his glory. As chapter 1 talked about. But in the same way that you come to this world already dead. Now, through faith, because of God's great mercy that he had for us. He has made us alive. And right now, sitting in in this school, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. This doesn't look like heaven. This is not what, we know, what it looks like on TV. But this is the truth. You're no longer dead. You are right now seated with him in the heavenly places. And look back at chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we're raised by the same power the same resurrection, and to the same glory as Jesus. There's our model. If we want to know what God thinks of us, look at Jesus. If we want to know what God is going to do with us and in our lives and in eternity, look at Jesus. Because your your eternity, the promises of God for you and your salvation are as sure as whatever he did in Jesus because you're in Christ. You're in him. God would have to violate everything to, to not fulfill his promises to us. He would have to deny his very son and all that he's done in Christ. That means Christ's death and resurrection was not effective. That's what you would have to believe to not believe God's promises. So God saves men who are dead and need life. Not those who are merely sick and need a little help. God is not a doctor that tells you to go home, take a couple aspirin, call him in the morning. No. He does everything to you. And what did, what did Lazarus have to do with his, his resurrection? Did he make some steps towards God? Did he initiate? No. He was dead. He had nothing to say. That's why Paul rejoices at the fruit of their faith. This is amazing. I mean, you think about all the persecution and the short time and, What an amazing time that just the Spirit's with Paul. He goes and preaches to people who don't... He goes to the synagogue so they have some context of God and religion. Other places, there's a bunch of pagans out on the steps and Mars Hill. And through a simple message, a foolish message, God sees fit to open hearts and create life. It's amazing. And it's something to rejoice over. It's also why verse 17 in chapter 1, God's not going to be stingy with his grace and his blessings. Romans 8 talks about this. If God has already given you his only son, the most precious thing to him, how will he not also with him give you all things? It doesn't make any sense. If you're going through a struggle, uh, some kind of pain, some kind of doubt, and you don't understand it, you can be sure it's not because God is not blessing you with everything. That's not it at all. I mean, even, even the journey... Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas is the one who, who, who made sure the Jews were comfortable with Paul, that he testified to his faith. And they went on this amazing journey together, persecution and jail. And then they have this huge dispute and, and they part ways. It seems kind of weird. Is the spirit not with these men? How are they fighting? And I don't know. I mean, maybe, I'm sure there was some sin involved, but also what we see is he sends Paul one way and Barnabas another. And he's multiplying his work. It doesn't make sense. The whole reason that, that the gospel left Jerusalem and Judea was because of persecution. Through evil, wicked hands, God is, is fulfilling his purposes. He's doing that in your life as well. You don't understand it. Maybe he'll give you clarity. Maybe he won't. Not on the side of heaven. But you can be sure that you are in Christ. You, you are still receiving every blessing. And your ultimate hope is in heaven. Uh, we don't have time, but I ask anyway. So uh, how do we experience new life? I'm telling you, you just, some things you just have to believe. But how, what does it mean? What does it feel like to have new life? <laughs> <laughs> Expound. <laughs> that, that's Southern uh, wisdom there.
1: It's um, our conscience is totally
0: cleansed of all dead works at the time that we were born become creation of So our conscience is dead, and then in new creation, we start filling that conscious conscience. Yeah, good. So you yeah. Be able to change allegiance. A change
2: in allegiance. Yeah. I like what you said earlier, we experience it in the Word, we experience it by.
0: Communion with God and listening to Him. So, our reading is a communion. The reading isn't just a a one way reading, it's a communion relationship with God. That's where the experience
2: happened. Yeah. One of the earliest ways that I I understood what God had done was the first Christmas I was saved. I started hearing Christmas carols. And i heard them all my life. Mm. And then suddenly
0: it's like, oh, that's what that means. (laughs) I had the exact same experience. I was an altar boy. And I couldn't believe, I actually started listening to the words of the Mass. I'm like, wow, that's what the resurrection was. (laughs) I mean, years, I stood there and served the altar. Wow, I had no idea what it meant. Oh, Very good. Tim.
2: My favorite uh, definition of regeneration is the healing of the central blindness of the soul. Uh, And the analogy I often use is my older brother was blind. Uh, but he went blind. He saw. He had sight mm. twenty-one years, but he went to a blind school in which there were people born blind, and he said, mm. "So, no
0: contrast. He's
2: trying to tell people who had been born blind what color it was, mm. or what some of the other things that people who had seen before could see." And I see that almost as the difference between us being regenerate and the unregenerate. It's
0: like trying to tell a person borderline what
2: color. Right,
0: exactly. They just don't see. Right. They don't see. Yeah, and that. So it it does help us to not be frustrated, hopefully, and yet to preach because it is in that act of preaching that God opens hearts. God has designed it that way, that in the in the very telling of this of the good news. Yeah, and and I, I know sometimes we. We glamorize those who have this big testimony and this conversion and we remember. Um, but it's, it's to God's glory if you don't remember that. If He saved you at such a young age, it, it is, you are blessed beyond those of us who, who have a life to, to deal with prior to that. Um, yeah. So some people say it's, it's when I know when I came to faith, uh, you could have thrown any kind of intellectual argument against the Bible at me. I couldn't have had any answer but I wouldn't have believed in any of it. Because what, what, and I, as I used to go back to my bedroom and think about it, as some people say, my wonder had changed. right? And I knew I couldn't do that. I knew that what I found pleasurable and I desired and I thought about, I found interesting, was completely new. I didn't understand what it was. I, I remember telling someone, all I know is my life is new. That's all I understand. So you know life when you see it. Or feel it, even if you can't explain it.
1: In this realization could you say it was like the euphoria of a feeling? Um,
0: there were moments of euphoria. Um, I mean, for me, I, I don't—I can't nail a date. It's, for me personally, it was over about a three-month time period. Um, it was just a—I I cared. I cared what this street preacher was saying. And I thought about it. And then I'd go off with my friends and a couple weeks later, that seed had been planted and I started wrestling with it. I did, the things I once enjoyed, I tried to enjoy them now and I couldn't. The spirit wasn't letting me enjoy those things. And I, you know, thankfully I had Christian friends I could turn to and talk to and go hear the gospel. Yeah, but I, I do think people's experiences are different. You can't assume. You know, one experience is going to be exactly like the next. All right, so we want to talk about we're saved. So now we're on to verses eight through ten. There, so we're saved by grace through faith and two good works. These words are called prepositions. These directional, positional words for you, probably some English majors out here. So the one thing I want to say about prepositions is they're very important. <laughs> Pay attention to them. I, I learned a lot more English when I started studying the Bible because you know, people started talking about these English rules and were, I just took for granted. By grace through faith to, because just think about it, what if you reverse this? What if you're saved by good works through faith to grace? <laughs> You've completely changed whatever Paul is saying, right? So on the one hand, these words are very important. The problem is, at the same time, it's it's quite challenging, right? And it's no different in Greek and Hebrew as it is in English. So, for instance, if I told you that I went to town by a train, by a train, I could mean at least two things, right? I jumped on the train, and I went by means of that train. That train took me to town. Or I could be saying something like, I took a, a footpath that walked right by a train. So, nearby a train. So, it's not very clear the way I said it. Um, if I said I washed the dishes in the sink. At least three things are possible. Either I washed the dishes that were in the sink. Maybe I picked those up out of the sink and put them in the dishwasher, but I didn't take the dishes off the table. I washed the dishes in the sink. Or, probably what you mean is I washed the dishes in the sink. That's where I did my washing, was in the sink. Or technically can mean I stood in the sink and washed the dishes, right? <laughs> technically, that sentence can say that. So you you have the same challenge and confusion with language in general. And so, as you study the Bible, sometimes, and and a lot of times, this is where we get our controversies, where our disagreements, either within Christendom or between us and the cults or others, is there are passages that could purely linguistically be taken two or three, four different ways. And so, we have to study. And we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. We have 20 passages that clearly teach one thing, and then a passage that could go linguistically a few different ways, we can ground that passage in the broader teaching of Scripture. Right? The one example that I've run into so many times in my life is Acts 2.38. Uh, it's on here somewhere. Acts 2.38, Peter is preaching, says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the way of someone who believes in baptismal regeneration, that you were saved in the waters of baptism, is that they say, see, you'll be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And that is linguistically accurate. You could say it, that that's what it means. But the word for, like every preposition, could mean all sorts of things. So sometimes you get into it. We're not going to deal with that verse. But um, there's probably some other, any other big examples out there where prepositions can be tricky and hairy in the scripture. Not important. But anyway, it's just, that's why we have to study. And we thankfully we have lots of experts we can turn to. Don't, don't get too concerned right away when a verse just kind of rubs at you wrong and take okay, a step back and study it. So, but here, let's look at what we mean in these. So we're saved by grace. So we're saved on account of grace. And really that's not accurate. How can I say Paul's not accurate? What does he really mean by that? We're not, grace is, what is grace? That's not, a, that's not a person. That's, that's a concept. We're not really saved by grace. We're saved by a gracious God, right? It's God because he's rich in mercy. He saved us. But that's what we mean by this, right? We're saved on account of grace. What do we mean by that? God initiates, as we said. It's a resurrection miracle. It's not some free will of a dead person. Um, it's immeasurable, verse 7. He Again, chapter 1, verse 8. He lavishes on us grace. And it's the antithesis to salvation by works. It's very clear here. It's by grace, not by works. That's an antithesis. It's one or the other. In 11, six, uh, Romans 11.6, he says, it's by grace, no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It can't be both. It has to be one or the other, grace or works. In Paul's theology. So we're saved on account of, of God initiating, God doing the work to a dead person who is in need. He does that through faith. We see that faith is a gift. It's a gift. He does it through faith. Now, we do say we're saved by faith. One of the big Reformation slogans is we're justified by faith. And so it's just, it's a simple way. This is maybe a little more expounded, clearer. But we're not really saved by faith in the sense that, oh, you have faith. Now I credit to your righteousness because your faith is worth something. It's not our faith that's worth something. It's that through faith we apprehend, we latch on we receive the grace of God. It's God who's worthy. It's Christ's death and resurrection that is meriting our salvation. Our faith isn't meriting anything. It's just taking hold of it and apprehending it. It's the means by which we gain access into the grace in which we now stand. Romans 5.1. Well, so if you don't have faith, you're
1: not going to get grace.
0: Absolutely. Well, not salvation grace. There is grace. There are gifts of God. He blesses all of creation. And so there is grace. There's grace in the fact that the world isn't destroyed right now today. In the day of you eat it, you shall die. We deserve death right now. The, the fact that we are given any time on this earth to enjoy the things of God or the, the joy of the things of creation to possibly receive, that is grace in that sense. But when we talk about grace that's saving you, and seating you in the heavenly places. Absolutely impossible without faith. God has to gift faith to you. To be saved. Maybe he does it at the last second of death. And we never see it. Sure that's possible. Maybe he does it in the womb. Before a child's aborted. But that faith is given. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved to good works. So Romans 2. Uh Ephesians 2.10 is very important. So here's what I would say. God expects good works. It's part of his plan. He expects them. Again, our salvation isn't just this one little act of coming to faith and, and believing him at once. It's, it's this whole thing. God expects good works. And as a new creation, we now have the ability to do good works. A dead man can't do any good works. So by being raised to life, he has now enabled us. He's put the spirit within us. He's enabled us to do good works. In fact, understanding grace will produce the most good works and the only good works that will ever last. Because if you do it by your effort, if you're doing it to gain God's pleasure, you're going to fail. And then you're going to go into deep depression because you failed. But if you're if you're secure in Christ and you have every blessing right now, seated in the heavenly places right now, and now he calls you to good works, a, a heart that understands this, is full of gratitude, will run to good works. And the fact that we don't run to good works in the sense that we are is because we're not living in this. It's not producing us. We're not holding on and understanding our new life in Christ. I'm like having your sheet there. God expects them and he prepares them for us. He prepares good works for us by preparing us for them. God prepares good works for us by preparing us for good works. He has enabled us to do these works. And now he expects we walk in them. And so lots of Paul letters kind of start with the these things that are true. The indicatives. And then he moves into the imperatives. The things that are now commanded. Things he must do. In light of all these truths when we get to chapter 4 or 5 he's going to say now this is how you ought to live, Christian. This is how you ought to live new new creature in this dead world. And it is amazing to understand these, to understand the fullness, the whole counsel of God that God has predestined us and adopted us to be very secure in these things. How are we ever boastful? How is that even possible? Maybe if you heed the call from Walt a couple of weeks ago to, to go to Next Step or from Guy to go to the rescue mission, and you're going to see all these dingy people. And, and it, you're lying if you're not going to fight back the feeling like, People, you're going to think of them as less than you. You're you're going to have things like, what do they do to get here? Does God even love these people? Or you're gonna you're gonna turn to someone who doesn't understand the theology as well we do. And you're gonna be filled with boastfulness about something that should humble you to the core. We still need the gospel. We still need grace. Any thoughts on that? How do how are we possibly boastful when we understand the truth of grace?
1: Because he doesn't have to give us anything at all. We are dead and our trespasses and our sins before we are saved and after we are saved. We have newness of life, and so we look at people seeing the eyes of the shepherd Mm.
0: who it is. We ought to be full of pity as we preach the gospel, as we live among the dead world. And remember, we were just like them, right? But for the grace of God, there go I. Yeah. Well, you know what young Calvinist disease is like? It's because you're excited. I think I still have it, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's just that
1: excitement, and it, it may sound like false for us, but you know, for many of us who came from Armenian backgrounds, I mean, it's just, you know, it talks about his first. I remember my first Christmas as a Reformed Christian. You know, right dawn. I mean, that Christ came for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just that revelation just. But it's just that excitement, you know, and. and and when you're around
0: your friends, it, it may yeah, I be most <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's a mix. All of our emotions are usually a mix. Yes.
2: I think the, probably the most compelling sign that you're starting to get, you're starting to get the gospel, is you see that you're better than the and you want to reach out to the broken people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, so that's, that's where a surveying of our good works should drive us. Not, oh, I haven't met it today, but what is going on in my heart? If I'm living or feeling or have an attitude of a certain way, that's what it should. It's not like I'm going to double down and do better today. God, what is going on in my heart to produce that? Let me deal with this on my knees in your word. And this really should naturally flow, although we work diligently for that. Talk about that and we'll ever get to Philippians 2. All right, um, contrast with James 2, I don't have time to go through all that, but if you want to go back to our James series online, when I went to James 2, I talked about it from that angle. But the challenge here is, Paul seems so clear. I mean, he's just preaching Protestant theology here, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 8 through 10. We're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's not of works. Well, then sometimes when you read James 2, it almost feels the opposite. As soon as you talk to your Catholic friend or your Mormon friend or others, they're going to say, yeah, but faith that that works is dead. Um, and they have their verses, right? James 2.17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Luther had a lot of problem with this. He, he put James in the back of his Bible, literally. Abraham and Rahab are told to be justified by works. But really, and I've said this before, when you kind of get into some sticky theology, just take a step back. Okay, what is James talking about? If you just read it, don't worry about the controversy or the sticky verses. What is James saying in chapter 2? It's very clear. You can't say you have faith and then do things that don't show that. You can't see your brother or sister you know, dressed in shabby clothes, lacking in daily food, and tell them just, just go in peace, brother, without giving them the things needed for the body. That doesn't make any sense. You say, you, you say you're going to show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So faith ought to show itself in good works. Isn't that exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2? We expect faith to demonstrate itself, to show itself. My personal view of James 2 is the word justified there is you're justifying your faith to the world, not to God. Whereas a justification before God, before a courtroom, where God justifies you and declares you righteous. Words can mean different things. There's other views of James 2 there, but I think James and Paul are completely in coherence with each other. We expect faith to show itself in good works, and we're going to get more and more into those good works as we go through Ephesians. I think uh, another thing there is you see
2: in this passage of Ephesians the work of God like in us to accomplish the good works. It's not good works as in just something that we're doing. It's something that God had, is doing through us, and, and it's you know, by God's hand. <coughs> just yeah. like being saved by grace and through faith. The two right. works is just as much a work of God as it is the other elements of that statement.
0: Yeah, and I'll just say, so Philippians 2, think it's 11 and 12, says you know that you should... Um, lost it now. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. for it's God who works in you. Too willing to act according to his good pleasure. You're working, and God's working. Exactly. Everything's working. Back in James 2, you see that faith was active along with Abraham's works. Faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled. Again, the good works is the end result. It's the completion. The fulfillment of being saved by grace through faith. And so, but when we talk about Disciplining a brother, rebuking a brother, or the church even disciplining someone. We do, we, we like, we might look at what they confess. We also look at their lives. Not because we're saved by works, but if we don't see this, there is, there is a legitimate expectation of good works and of holy living that can be used to examine. And so there is a somewhat of an assumption when we look at this, what's going on in the heart and what God has done. Final questions and thoughts. Anything
2: I, just going back to James, I look at that as kind of a warning to that point. If you're not seeing the good works that are supposed to be, you know, attended to you know grace and faith, then you need to ask yourself if you have, you know, the faith and You know, by grace that God gives, and see. Yeah,
0: Yeah, absolutely. It is a warning, and we have warning passages given to Christians, given to churches. The the response to being challenged or rebuked by a brother about I don't, I don't think that you handle that well, or What's going on in life? I haven't seen you at church for a couple months. What's going on? If you're offended by that, good. (laughs) The response isn't. But I'm saved by grace. But it doesn't matter. That shows that maybe this hasn't happened. The response ought to be fall on your knees and figure out what's going on. And accept and be encouraged by that wound of a friend. Yeah?
2: I like how Sproul summarizes that up where he says that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. But it's a faith
0: that's not alone. That's right. Yeah, the faith if is never alone. If it's alone, then it's not really a legitimate faith. Exactly right. And I think that is James's point, point. And... Let, more subtly, but exactly what Paul is actually saying as well. All right, Ed. Which? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Here. Do you think there's difference between
1: faith and faith?
0: Well, the the reformers talked about three elements of saving faith. So having an understanding, of uh, some knowledge, um, and, and and agreeing to that knowledge. So there's a set of facts, agreeing to that as being true. But then there's the element of trust. Uh, so there yes, I mean James even says. Even the de- demons believe and shudder, so there is a belief that isn't saving faith, because you don't you're not placing your trust in it. I mean, in another sense, though, if you really believed that Jesus was the Christ, I don't see how you couldn't trust in Him. <laughs> but I don't know if it's a plane with words. But but yes, there is there is an agreement ag- an agreement to knowledge, but it, it's it's we see faith put in, in trust in this. You see these churches in persecution; they're pu- that's why persecution is a great trial for faith and suffering in general because how you respond to that shows where your hope is, where your heart and your eyes are pointed. Are they in this world? Were you kind of getting something from Christianity? A status or a feel-good or friends? Or was this really, if you're the only Christian left in Las Vegas and you're going to be tortured for it, what will you do with that? A little extreme, I know, but... Yeah. Ed, could you close us in prayer? With Father God, we thank you
2: for the wonder of His grace that we always be seeing that it's your mercy to us. It's your kindness. made sure that all of us are taken out of darkness in our life. And we are here this way, are hearing those things. And they make sense to us. Father, the of grace, help us now as we move forward. Be fit
1: and fully bring our heart, soul, mind, and strength.